This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for the World in Time podcast has been provided by Lizette Prince through the EJMP Fund for Philanthropy. Speaking today with the world traveler and historian Simon Winchester about his latest book, Pacific. Your title, Simon, refers to the ocean as opposed to a temperament or a state of mind. Why choose so immense a topic with so many elements, environmental, historical, geographical, geopolitical? How did you come upon the structure of the book? It seemed to me, first of all, that um, we've reached a sort of hinge point in history. Um, There was a time up until, I suppose, this 15th century, when the the inland sea of the classical world, the inland sea of the world, was the Mediterranean. And so the the axis, as it were, was between Alexandria and Genoa, somewhere like that. And then came you know, Columbus and all those good people, and the axis changed to, in the 19th century, or let's say New York and London, and the Atlantic Ocean was the was the centre of the of, of the world's activities, commerce, exchange of ideas, and so on and so forth. But since the middle of the last century, of the of the twentieth century, I think things changed yet again. Hence the hinge point. And now the axis runs between, let us say, San Francisco in the east and um, you know, Shanghai, Beijing, Tokyo on the west. The Pacific Ocean, vast enormous, as you say, I mean, 64 million square miles, one third of the planet. I mean, all the continents would happily lie in it and sink because it is so deep. It would certainly tower over the summit of Mount Everest. It seemed to me that this ocean is the the place where the future of the world is going to be played out and we need to pay attention to it. So I decided um, I would have a, a, a bash at writing a book about it. I, in, in fact, wrote a book about it in the 1980s, I think, or early 1990s, when I was living in Hong Kong. And I had traveled a great deal around the Pacific at the time. And I wrote a book saying, I suppose, much more crudely, the same thesis. But it was a ill-structured book. And it um, I wasn't, uh, I mean, I used it as a reference book for writing this one. But uh, but it, it didn't really work as a book. So I wanted to have another go. I thought I'd structure it more sensibly. And um, what the way I structured it was based on my discovery three or four years ago of the writings of the somewhat forgotten Austrian author Stefan Zweig, who in his lifetime, which ended tragically, as, as you know, in Brazil when he and his uh, then wife uh, committed suicide in 1942 because they were so distressed at the state of the world, largely the Atlantic world, it has to be said. He wrote one of his many, many books was about 10 events that changed the world. And they were, you know, the odd things. I mean, the, 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 the composition of the Marseillaise, the um, trial of Cicero, the, I mean, all sorts of extraordinary things. And yet it worked as a book. So I thought what I'd do with the Pacific was to, first of all, to begin it in modern times, to say we know all about Magellan, we know all about Captain Cook, we know about Balboa, the man who, the European who first and Joseph Conrad and, and I'm Herman afraid, yes, I'm and an, Melville. I, I, I know, so Lewis, yeah. that you're a fan of Conrad and Melville, and I like them too. But I just figured that they were 
they weren't as much a part of the story as things that happened after, and I had to choose a certain date, and I chose 1950. Why, why 1950 precisely, well, 65 years ago? Because of one rather peculiar and little-known scientific reason, it has become relatively unfashionable nowadays to use the terms A.D. and B.C. to denote years because Anno Domini and before Christ were not all Christians. And so to many, many people in the world, those two, that dating system is uh, out of date, if you like. So there's been a fudge in recent years. We talk about things happening B.C.E., which is either before Common Era or before Christian era. But even that doesn't uh, work for the scientific community. And they came up a few years ago with a new age um, system called BP. You talk about the Wisconsin Ice Age, say, as occurring 10,000 years BP. And BP stands for before present, which prompts the question, well, when is present? And it's been decided by a group of radio chemists in, of all places, Queen's University, Belfast, that before 1950, before January the 1st, the world, the atmosphere was pure, relatively pure anyway, it's pure enough that carbon dating, and I don't want to go off in too much of a tangent here, carbon dating was accurate. The amount of the ratio of carbon-12 to the unstable carbon-14 atom was fixed and known, and so you could date things that died as a result of working out the ratio in a dead tree and so forth and see how it compared to the baseline. But, and it's an important but, ever since 1950, the atmosphere has become increasingly polluted with additional carbon-14 that has been thrown up there by humankind's testing of nuclear weapons. Carbon-14 is a byproduct of atomic testing. And so it distorted the baseline. And so carbon-14 dating became, for a long while, useless, pointless. We couldn't do it because the baseline kept changing. And so these scientists said, all right, before January the 1st, 1950, the world, the atmosphere was essentially pure. And after 1950, it was impure because of all the additional carbon-14. And to me, because nearly all of that additional carbon-14 was a result of atomic testing in the Pacific Ocean, it seemed to have a sort of poetic appropriateness for me. Yes. And and one of your chapters is the thermonuclear sea. How does that work? I well, mean, in, we, indeed, we know about the bomb in, in 1945, but since you talk at some length about the, the kinds of explosions and experiments that we've been conducting, I think something like a thousand ex- nuclear explosions, you know, tests, many of them in the Pacific Ocean, and... Uh, Say something about that and, and the and Bikini and Kwajalein. Yes, uh, the Marshall Islands, it strikes me as a, it's a tragic story, really, and a cynically um, engineered story by the American government. And I feel I can be critical of America now because I am an American. I became a citizen in 2011, so it's not an outsider looking in. It's an insider looking inwards. What happened was, um, after um, the successful testing in uh, New Mexico and then the dropping of the first two uh, nuclear weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945, it was decided by the American government that those weapons, uh, atomic bombs, fission bombs, relatively primitive bombs, should be tested and improved and new ones made. And then this whole new family of what were known as the supers, which were 
bombs of limitless theoretical size, hydrogen bombs, fusion bombs, which are effectively like uh, um, the, the, the radiation from the sun, should also be tested. Well, where to test them? And the obvious place to the American government was in this relatively unpeopled part of the northwest Pacific where the Marshall Islands lie. And so they decided there was an airfield there on, on Kwajalein, which had been used in the Second World War. So they decided that anywhere that was within about a 500-mile range of Kwajalein would be suitable to test these weapons. And they decided, having looked at their maps and so forth, that Bikini Atoll would be the ideal. This is a, an atoll very large with about 70 islands with a huge lagoon. And because the initial thoughts were that the the, the naval vessel was the most significant likely target for a, for a dropped nuclear weapon because armies can hide and aeroplanes can fly off into the sky, but a ship is literally a sitting target. So let's see how ships behave when an atomic bomb is dropped on them. So they decided to do this testing in the lagoon at Bikini, but the people, a small number of people that lived there had to be evacuated. And the way this was done was so cynical. The Bikinians, like most of the Marshallese, had been converted to Christianity in the 19th century by largely American Christian missionaries. So the Bikinians were Christians, they knew their Bible, they spoke English. So what did the Pentagon do to persuade them to allow their island, their lagoon, to be used as a testbed for nuclear weapons? There's an extraordinary little video which you can see, which the Pentagon itself released, showing a nice sort of smooth, plausible American naval commander talking to the islanders who are sitting around him on the sand with a sort of South Pacific scene behind them of palm trees leading, leaning into the trade winds and surf boiling up on the beach. And he says, you remember from Exodus that passage about the Lord sending a signal to the Israelites leaving Egypt that they should walk behind a pillar of fire and smoke. Well, we can create a pillar of fire and smoke, a signal for you to leave temporarily, of course, your island while we conduct the work of the Lord. And these islanders, sweet, innocent people, said, seriously, you can make a pillar of fire and smoke? Well, indeed, that would be a signal that we should, you're doing the work of the Lord. We will leave, okay. And they left, somewhat puzzled. They abandoned their houses, they abandoned their outrigger canoes and their nets and their coconut plantations, and they left the islands, which the Americans then for the next 25 years, devastated with bomb after bomb after bomb. First, the new and improved fission bombs, and then after the early 1950s, the extraordinarily powerful and utterly devastating fusion bombs, the biggest of them all, Castle Bravo, 1954, March the 1st. That had the most appalling, and this is a subsidiary story, really, um, effect on neighbouring islands, because the man who was in charge of the test firing, who himself had survived a radiation accident and thought that radiation was no big deal. He had been involved in an accident that actually killed someone in um, Los Alamos a couple of years previously. He was in bed for a year suffering from radiation poisoning, but he got over it. And he said, well, radiation's no big deal. So he was in charge now of exploding this enormous bomb, Castle Bravo, and just before the firing of it, 
the winds which had been blowing to the north and therefore would take any cloud of radiation over a, a sea with no ships, no people at all, suddenly changed and blew from the west straight over an island called Ronjalap, was indeed full of people. And in, in spite of all the scientists and all the other naval officers saying, don't fire the bomb because it will produce a cloud of radiation which will go over Ronjalap, he said, radiation's no big deal. I survived it. These people will get over it. And so he detonated it. 6 a.m., 1st of March, 1954, a titanic explosion. And in Ronjalap, 120 miles away to the northeast, and half an hour later, the islanders, who had all been woken up by this massive explosion over to, to their west, saw flakes which looked to them like snow falling from the sky. They were, in fact, calcined coral coming up from the reef in Bikini, highly radioactive. They thought, we've read about snow. This must be the snow that everyone talks about. And they picked up these flakes of coral and started feeling them and tasting them, putting them on their tongues. Within half an hour, they were staggering around, yeah, vomiting, right. and sick. Yeah. And they were left there as guinea pigs for nearly, th I think, three days, while Americans, terrified of going on the island because they knew it was so terribly irradiated, said, let's examine them from the ships with binoculars to see how they do. Until finally, there was a furious telegram from Washington saying, rescue them, treat them. But an awful lot of them have been sick, and most of them, of course, have since died. Are we still testing nuclear bombs in the Pacific? I mean, that's 1954. Are, are we still doing this, or have we moved them all underground into the United States? Well, there's very little testing now. It's mostly done by mathematical modeling. But, of course, other powers joined uh, to test nuclear weapons in the Pacific. We, the British, did own Christmas Island. There are two Christmas Islands, but this is the one in the, in the Pacific. The French and Mangareva and the, the atolls in the southern part of the Gambia Islands uh, they were doing that into the 1990s. The Chinese test in, in the Tibetan desert and much of their material blows over the northern Pacific, but essentially it's been dropped by the, uh, by the test ban treaty. The other point about your date, 1950, is the withdrawal since 1950 from the Pacific and the Pacific Rim, the, the, the whole uh, conjuries of islands and coasts the withdrawal of the European powers. Now, they, in, an, in 1950, the Americans believed that they owned the, the Pacific mm -hmm. and in the same way that the British at one point believed they owned the Pacific or the, the French believed they owned Indochina. And, but since 1950, the Pacific has come back into the possession of the Pacific Island peoples. Give us a, a very brief history of the retirement of the uh, Western hordes. Well, I mean, suppose after I mean, the Spanish and the Portuguese were first, of course, but then, then came uh, the French, the Germans, Japanese, of course, for a while, um, uh, and the Americans and the British, as you so rightly say. I suppose the beginning of the rot, so far as the European powers were concerned, how they would put it, uh, came with the French withdrawal from Indochina, that disastrous battle at Dien Bien Phu in the mid-1950s, um, where, oddly enough, the French briefly suggested to the Americans that the, the Viet Minh uh, might be uh, nuked. You know, the Americans might use tactical nuclear weapons against them, but mercifully, um, uh, the presidents at the time said, no, we're definitely not going to help you with nuclear weapons. So they were defeated, they withdrew... 
that was regarded by the Vietnamese essentially as the first uh, Vietnamese war of independence. And the second one was, of course, the one involving the Americans and the Americans then withdrew. So that was the beginning of the end of a lot of Western, what I suppose I really mean by that is white external domination of the Pacific, followed smartly by the withdrawal of the British, which was a much more measured withdrawal. And I suppose the high point was the, when I was there at the time, uh, June the 30th, 1997, which was when we, the British, when I was a Briton, um, left Hong Kong. And that was... um, left us with just one possession, which we've still got in the Pacific, and that's Pitcairn Island, which, of course, was settled in 1789. That's the the mutineers on the bounty. bounty, And there is an extraordinary little story, which uh, I'll briefly tell if we've got time about Pitcairn. Pitcairn, population of 46 people, most of them named Christian or Adams, descendants of Fletcher Christian and others on the bounty. Um... In the mid-1990s, late-1990s, Sussex in England had some spare money and decided to send a young police officer, a woman, to Pitcairn just to see what policing a a tiny little colony would be like. They never had a police person there. So this woman turned up on Pitcairn, where there is no airport. She had to be dropped from a cargo ship, and discovered to her horror, nice, you know, young home counties English girl, that... um, the Pitcairners were sleeping, marrying, uh, sleeping with, marrying, having children by youngsters as young as 12. And she said, this is horrifying. And she's, the islanders said, no, this is the way we've done it. This is the Polynesian way. She said, well, I'm sorry, you're a British colony. Um, you're not to do it this way. And when I get home to England, I'm going to tell them about it. And so she did. And the full majesty of British law then descended on Pitcairn, which had never seen. 46 people. 46 people, exactly, um, with no telephones, no no anything, really. I mean, they just grew pineapples and did a bit of fishing. There's no dock, no nothing. So they decided they were going to prosecute. They identified, I think, oh, eight. God, they eight. moved a man in with a wig. Well, <laughs> they, they literally did. They, they, the nearest administrative center is, New, is Auckland in New Zealand, so judges came out from there, the press came out from there, defense counsel, a British court was set up. Six men, I think it might have been six or eight, were found guilty and were sentenced to varying times in prison. But, of course, there was no prison. If they were sent to the nearest prison, which was in New Zealand, 4,000 miles away, that meant that they were all the able-bodied men on the island would have disappeared, which meant that the longboats, which row out to any stopping cargo ship, would not be able to do so. And so they would have no cargo, no beer, no loo paper, no all the things they need. So the island would effectively die. So what did the British authorities do? Well, would you know, IKEA makes a prison in a box. They ordered a prison from Stockholm, which was brought (laughs) on a boat to Pitcairn Island. It was erected by the men who were going to be put into it. They put themselves in. There was a guard from outside stationed there. And every time a ship arrived and the longboats needed to be rowed out to pick up the cargo, the men were released from prison got in the longboats, rowed out, got the cargo, and then got back into prison. They all served out their sentences. The last one was released about 18 months ago, whereupon the prison, which is the only building on Pitcairn Island with indoor plumbing, was converted into a hotel. <laughs> oh, God. 
Have you ever been? I mean, you've been all over the world, Simon. Have you ever been to Pitcairn? I have been to Pitcairn, not since the prison was built. No, no but you, to, you stopped there. On I've your, been twice, yes, yes. yes. You've been to Easter Island also? I've been to Easter Island, Rapa Nui, as it's really called, but which is the eastern edge of the, um, of the Polynesian. Uh, How many? You, you now speak about the Pacific as, as the, the, the eye of the world. I mean, as you say, the, the center of tomorrow's world. How many different languages, peoples, uh, can we properly call Pacific people? I mean, we can call the Japanese, for example, a Pacific. You certainly can. I mean, I was in the Sea of Okhotsk, which is in um, the northwestern Pacific. I mean, you've got Kamchatka, you've got Sakhalin Island, you've got the the people who live in Providenia in northeastern Siberia. I mean, Chukchi, I mean, people who you would think of in a way sort of Eastern Europeans, they're Pacific people, the Alaskan Islanders, the Aleutian Islanders, all the islands, you know, Polynesia, Melanesia, Micronesia, um, Australia, of course, New Zealand, Chile, um, and all the islands of what is, is what do they call the continental ocean, which is that watery body containing myriad islands, Indonesia with its 37,000 islands, the Philippines with, I think, 17,000 islands. That's all a very watery but nonetheless island-dotted part of the Western Pacific. You've got Korea and, of course, China. So it's a great, as you say, a congress of, of extraordinary variety, but all quite, in my view, legitimately Pacific people. And the Pacific Ocean is really the source of the world's weather. I, I think you discussed that. Explain how that works in, in the in the center of the Pacific Ocean, where where mm-hmm. the weather moves from the um, west, the Pacific, toward the east, which would be toward the American coastline. Right. And, and how does the weather, uh, how does the Pacific serve as the generation of, of the world's weather? Very basically, all of the world's weather derives from the way that the sun heats the sea because the heating of the sea causes it to evaporate, which causes moisture to rise into the atmosphere. And under the effects of the Coriolis force, you know, the fact that the planet is is moving in a a westerly direction all the time, great speed in the centre and less great speed, of course, towards the poles, then all this rising moisture creates vortices and areas of high and low pressure. Well, Very simply, because the Pacific is so vast, as we've discussed, one third of the surface of the planet. I mean, the Robinson Jefferson quote that uh, I put at the beginning of the book, he calls it the great unsleeping eye of the Earth. Because if you look at the Earth from space when the Pacific is showing towards you, you see nothing but blue sea. That is being radiated by the sun and an immense amount, therefore, of stuff occurs in different stuff occurring at different times, depending whether the, the, the season and whether the, the sun is hitting it you know, at 90 degrees or whether it's just glancing in the north or southern hemispheres. All sorts of things are happening, and at massive scale. And the centerpiece of all this is a circulatory pattern of winds, which were named after a man who first discovered them. He was called Gilbert Walker, And he was the head of the Meteorological Survey of all places, India. 
and he was fascinated by meteorological statistics. And he looked at wind patterns and pressure patterns and came up with this idea that there was a regular circulatory pattern over the Pacific, which he was, is named to this day the Walker Circulation. And the Walker Circulation creates this phenomenon known as the El Nino, which is hugely important. It's important at the moment. It's causing our rather it's, extraordinary... It's this weather. year in California. Exactly, right? this yeah. year in California. Very basically, the, the patterns of currents off the South American coast, because of the influence of the Walker Circulation, every few years, somewhat randomly, but getting more um, frequent as the years go on, and that's a big, big problem, um, moves moves slightly westwards, away from the South American coast. And it seems to do so around Christmas time, every five, six, seven, eight years. And when it does so, the anchovies, or the anchovators as they're called, um, cease to be to flourish. And, and the fishing industry is briefly devastated in the in the um in the, west, in the far eastern Pacific, off the coast of Peru and, and Ecuador. It so happens that because the fish disappear, then the birds that eat these fish die, and there are great stinking masses in certain places, it sounds rather revolting, of dead birds because they've starved from want of fish. This causes noxious gases to rise up out of the... Pacific off the coast of Peru to blister the paint of the fishing boats. It all sounds very weird, but they, what would happen is that from time immemorial, fishing boats would come back into ports like Calao and so forth and say, there are no fish, there are just masses of stinking dead birds, and look at the side of my boat, it's been rotted, yeah, all right, the gases. Yeah, right. So they gave this phenomenon the name El Nino because it often occurred at about the time of the birth of the Christ child, the Nino. It was Gilbert Walker that worked out what was happening under the surface of the sea why, because of the circulatory patterns, why the water patterns down below were affected because water is affected by wind, and the whole phenomenon of El Nino and what's called ENSO, the El Nino Southern Oscillation, was born. And that guides the world's weather, as we know only too well this year, because the existence of a powerful El Nino at the moment means scorching desert heat in South America, massive snowfall in the far west of the United States, but effectively drought-like conditions and mild winter, no skiing, if you remember this past winter in the American Northeast, and a cascade of other events all over the, all over the world, all generated in the Pacific Ocean. And has this been affected by climate change? Has that made a has that heightened the, the, this, this um, phenomenon? I'm very glad you brought that up, Lewis, because that is hugely important. Because what is happening independent of the El Nino thing is that the, as we all well know, or most of us anyway, not in the Republican Party know, the Earth is getting warmer. That global warming is happening for many, many reasons, one of them probably being anthropogenic global warming because of all the carbon, uh, um, the greenhouse gases that we have emitted. The ocean's getting warmer. The ocean is getting more acidic. And we see the effect of that on, for instance, the barrier reef, which is being stripped of its corals, 30% now of Australia's most beautiful natural uh, possession, the Great Barrier Reef, 
30% of it is now ruined now because of acidity in the ocean and the rising temperature of the ocean. So all of these things, particularly the rising temperature of the ocean, accelerates, it seems, there's still not a huge amount of statistical evidence, but it's suggesting that this is increasing the frequency of El Ninos, which is increasing the frequency of violent weather all around the world. And indeed, the number of enormous typhoons, they're known as typhoons in the North Pacific and cyclones in the South Pacific, is increasing rapidly. And and an American admiral who was in charge of Pacific Command, Locklear, his name was, said a couple of years ago at at a meeting at Harvard that the most serious threat to national security in the Pacific Ocean these days, we all know about North Korea, we all know about China and the South China Sea and so forth, but in fact it was change in the weather, the number of terrific, mega-destructive storms in the Pacific caused by global warming and the increasing acidity of the ocean. That, he said, have an American admiral command of, what, 350,000 American forces all around the Pacific to say the most dangerous thing is the changing weather patterns in the Pacific is phenomenal. But let's also talk about the geopolitical danger because the as you know, the Obama administration has announced a pivot, a turn in its policy toward the um, Pacific. And then there are quite a few people wandering around Washington in the halls of strategic uh, thinking and military power who are contemplating a possible uh, armed conflict with China in the South China Sea. The, the uh, Chinese Navy is is now got as, almost as many sub- nuclear submarines as the United States Navy. And uh, how seriously do you regard the the uh, that kind of possibility? I mean, this is the old empire, you know. Well, it way goes, of thinking. It goes back in a way to the, the dictates of an extraordinary Chinese admiral called Liu Huaqing, who's died not too long ago. He was, as it happens, the commander in charge of Chinese forces at Tiananmen Square in 1989. So not not necessarily a nice man, but nonetheless a very competent uh, sailor. And he came up with the view in a series of papers written in the uh, early 1990s that by 2049, which is the 100th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China, the Chinese Navy should have as much authority over the Pacific Ocean as the U.S. Navy has today. And leaving aside the relatively small local problem of the South China Sea, which is what's exercising the Americans at the moment, you know, who runs the South China Sea and the Chinese building aerodromes and docks and lighthouses and beacons and all the hitherto uninhabited islands, but in what the Filipinos call the West Pacific, the West Philippine Sea, what the Chinese call the South China Sea. That's, that is causing a problem in and of itself, which may lead to an armed confrontation, but it'll be a local one. But the more, the bigger issue is Admiral Liu on the charts drawn in the 1990s and early 2000s. He posited the existence of three what he called island chains, which protect China and her east coast. The first first island chain runs, if you look at the maps, from uh, Japan 
down to, let's say, Cape York in northeastern Australia. The second island chain runs from the tip of the Aleutian Islands down to New Zealand, and the third island chain runs from Alaska down to Hawaii. And the Chinese say that by 2020, they will have a blue water navy exercising all the way up to the first island chain. By 2030 to the second, and by 2049, they will feel they have a prescriptive right to exercise their aircraft carriers. They've got one at the moment, four under construction. The Americans have only two in the Pacific Ocean. Um, And all their other surface ships and submarines, as you so rightly say, in the waters clear up to Hawaii. And that is causing the admirals at Pearl Harbor apoplexy. They think they, they have no right. My own personal view is that the Pacific is big enough to accommodate everyone. And um, why do the Americans necessarily think that they have to control the Pacific Ocean? But nonetheless, they do. And they want to try and dissuade the Chinese from extending their authority. Well, good luck with that. Before you go, Simon, then let us get to uh, your conclusions, your feeling, your your sense of, of possibility in a Pacific, uh, in both senses of the word, not just the ocean, but also the temperament and the state of mind. And the first of all, you say that the Pacific could conceivably absorb enough of the carbon in causing climate change to be a long-term partial solution to that problem. And then you talk at the end about a voyage that is currently being undertaken by a twin-hull outrigger canoe sailed by Polynesians around the world without using any Western navigational devices, no watch, no compass, no clock, and yet they're trying to navigate their way around the world. And you, and you see something in that and an understanding in, uh, about the Pacific on its different coasts of, of a uh, man working out a uh, more harmonious r- relation with nature. I think you summed it up perfectly, Lewis. I mean, we referred earlier to the withdrawal of the Europeans and the Americans largely from at least colonial possession and colonial wars in the Pacific, leaving the Pacific peoples to deal with their own ocean, as it were, without too much interference from us. And I think that can be nothing but a good thing. I think it's, it's right that we should leave them to their own devices which is somewhat alarming in view of President Obama's declared policy of forgetting about the tiresome arguments of the Middle East, let's devote our attentions to the Pacific. I say, no, let the Pacific look after the Pacific and stop interfering. I mean, interference is what we Westerners have spent most of our past 500 years doing to calamitous effect all around the world or in much of the world. The point you raise about climate, uh, I think, is also very important. And I don't want to be too technical about it, but it goes largely to a creature which was only discovered in 1989. So what are we talking about 30 years ago? Called, it's got a horrible name. I wish they'd give it a better name. It's called Prochlorococcus. 
This is a tiny little single-celled creature which was discovered in the Caribbean by a group of researchers from MIT. It turns out to be the most numerous creature in the world. There are more pro-chlorococci. They inhabit the upper 15 feet of the sea and the warm sea. They're bobbing around there, hitherto invisibly. But what it does is it absorbs carbon dioxide and it breathes out, as it were, oxygen. One in five of the breaths that we're taking in this studio today, Lewis, is produced by a creature in the sea that we didn't even know existed until 1989. Well, the thing about Prochlorococcus is that the warmer the sea, the more of them there are. It likes warm water. It's extending its range, it's extending its, its numbers in both the Atlantic and the Pacific because the ocean is warming up. So the warmer the seas, the more of these creatures, the more carbon dioxide they absorb, the more oxygen they pump out. It's a classic example of this sort of somewhat poetic view of the Gaia theory, of the Earth looking after itself. After all, we, the effect that we as humans will have on this planet is very temporary. I mean, I used to be a geologist. I mean, our appearance on this planet will last maybe a quarter of a million years total. I mean, compare that to the Ammonite or the Graptolite or the, or the dinosaurs even, who lasted for millions of years. We'll have an effect, but the Earth will repair itself and things like Prochlorococcus will help it to do so. So that may sound like poetic flimflam. I actually think it's good, sensible science. But the more poetic side is what re you referred to a few moments ago, and that's this wonderful voyage of the Hokulea. This is a, a twin-hulled, 60-foot-long catamaran that a group of Hawaiians built in the 1970s as their gift to the American bicentenary in 1976. They began a voyage May the 14th, 2014. They set out on this craft from Maui with the intention of sailing completely around the world with, with as you say, no instruments whatsoever. And they're now in the Atlantic Ocean. They are actually, as we speak, near Washington, D.C. What I would love to see is this little craft going into Chesapeake, going up the Potomac, and showing themselves, greeting their Hawaiian president to show what Polynesian peoples can do. Because their attitude towards the Pacific is an attitude that's sorely lacking, in my view, in the Western attitude. They revere it, they love it, and most of all, they respect it. And I think that's what we take from there. As you, I said, you could consider this just the dreams of a would-be poet. But I think the Polynesians have respect for their oceans. And if we had respect for the ocean, it would be in a darn sight better shape than it is today. We've been talking to Simon Winchester, author of many, many books. His most recent and newest is Pacific. It's a, always a pleasure to talk to Simon Winchester. Thank you, Lewis. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details. <laughs>